first half of John's Gospel retells stories and signs that take place over three years of Jesus' ministry in the first century. The second half of the Gospel, more or less, focuses on Jesus' last week, and a large portion of that is set on the night that he was betrayed. In this part of the spiritual gospel, we will explore what scholars have named the Farewell Discourse. It is a large block of teaching set on the night before the crucifixion. In the story, it sort of functions as Jesus' last lecture to his disciples. He tries to prepare them for what's to come, he gives them some final instructions, and he encourages them to wait and trust. And even though this teaching is firmly embedded in a remote culture in the distant past, many of its themes remain relevant for us today. Join us as we consider the Farewell Discourse. All right, so Josh and Kate had a chance to go away for the weekend. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully they will come back nice and relaxed. What? Yeah, when, yeah, that too. Hope they come back. Um, so if you're seeing me up here and you think, yeah, it's gonna be a short one tonight, you are right. So you're welcome in advance. <laughs> All right. Let us start with the scripture for tonight. John 14, verses 15 through 31. says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, asked, Lord, why are you about to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my word. The word that you hear isn't mine. It is the word of the Father who sent me. I've spoken these things to you while I am with you. The companion, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I give to you not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and returning to you. If you loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than me. I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you will believe. I won't say much more to you because this world's ruler is coming. He has nothing on me. Rather, he comes so that the world will know that I love the Father and do just as the Father has commanded me. Get up, we're leaving this place. Word of God for the people of God. So as you know, we've been working our way through the book of John for some time now. 
we continue to camp out in what's called the farewell discourse. Farewell discourse is primarily concerned with the departure of Jesus and the response of his disciples. I want to open with a, an interesting fact, interesting to me at least. Sayings of Jesus that we're about to discuss do not appear in the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the form that they've been found in John. Luke 11:13 mentions the work of the Spirit, but in quite different contexts from John. We'll talk more in a bit, but the Spirit of Truth or the Holy Spirit is designated as the paraclete in John's farewell discourse. That's unique to this gospel as well. Just have to say, just a warning, Tessa planted in my head earlier, parakeete, <laughs> in discussion of paraclete. So if I mix it up, that's why she planted it. The passage begins with, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. For John, the commands and the teachings of Jesus are carried out in the context of a single command. Love one another as Jesus loved us. I want you to tuck that away for a little bit as we delve into the rest of the passage, but keep in mind the simplicity and the magnificence of that single command, love one another. This emphasizes the love for Jesus and the association of the love for him as it relates to keeping his commandments. Craig Keener writes that keeping the commandments in the context, especially love, seems a prerequisite for acquiring or continuing in the activity of the Spirit. We find in several places in the Old Testament, including Exodus and Deuteronomy, that in covenant tradition, those who love God will keep his commandments. For John, love is not just a feeling or a sentiment. It's a specific content through God's commands. I will ask the Father and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. Let me point out the word another. It indicates that there already was one. Now Jesus is never named as that companion, but he's already served in this capacity for the disciples. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. The Common English Bible's translation uses the term companion, but we can also read this in view of the NIV's description of advocate. I think to view the Holy Spirit in a couple of different ways helps us to better understand the Spirit's role. As I read numerous commentaries on John, the Holy Spirit was described in two main ways. The first was playing the role of comforter. As N.T. Wright points out, the role of comforter can be likened to the role of having people around you after a tragedy takes place or loss takes place and the comfort that that brings. I've heard so many people say, and I've experienced it myself, that the very week after losing a loved one is unique. After death or a tragedy, people surround you. People are with you. They bring you meals. They check on you. They share stories with you. They comfort you. So in my experience, it gets tougher after that first week when life gets back to quote normal. 
It's a lonely feeling that comes when you're left with processing the grief. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling a, good, a degree of contentment in knowing that the Holy Spirit fills this void. The second descriptor is that of advocate. An advocate pleads a case in court and law and explains to the judge or jury how things are from the client's point of view. The book of John reflects a much more traditional Jewish world of thought. In biblical times, Jewish synagogues also function as judicial assemblies that dealt with internal religious issues. People of the day could relate to the idea of a heavenly law court with God as the judge, presenting the Holy Spirit or paraclete as advocate would be reminded that God will hear your case and will be reminded of your plight. As Wright says, the spirit will plead on your behalf. The disciples follow Jesus's commandments and as Keener writes, they expect an eschatological vision of him, but instead his presence will indwell his people. The spirit will appear as Jesus's gift. Jesus tells us that he is sending this companion of truth and this spirit comes from God who is truth. I use the term paraclete, which simply means the Holy Spirit as advocate or counselor. We can say that the paraclete has three major positive functions. John 14, 26 demonstrates the function of teaching and reminding. The companion, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. The paraclete testifies about Christ. When the companion comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Thirdly, the paraclete guides into all truth, making the things of Christ known to all disciples and glorifying Christ. However, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He won't speak on his own, but he'll say whatever he hears and will proclaim to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and proclaim it to you. In essence, the paraclete or the Holy Spirit functions as helper. Verse 17 refers to the world and its inability to receive the spirit. In this context, the world or cosmos is painted as a dark place. There are many troubles and God is not known. Parallels can be drawn here that the world had difficulty knowing God and Jesus. The world was intent on hating Jesus and ultimately killing him because he spoke the truth. So now we add another layer of refusal to see. The world can't see the presence of God in the disciples. The cosmos was considered spiritually dead. They had only earthly faculties and couldn't penetrate into the spiritual realm. The connotation is that in reference to the world, it has a negative function to expose the guilt of sin. And as we will see in John 16, that will be the case. The outside world refers to those outside of Jesus's following, probably by the Judean religious authorities who stand for opposition. At this point in time, the present had God's spirit in Jesus, but the future promised of the spirit indwelling in believers directly. That's mind blowing to me now. So I can only imagine the disciples trying to wrap their head around that. 
the disciples seem to have gotten a bad rap for being dense and not being able to figure out what Jesus was trying to tell them was coming. But I don't know that their minds, I, I can't imagine that their minds had the capacity to understand what was coming without already experiencing it. So now Jesus has been warning his disciples that he will be going away, but he offers them yet another <laughs> promise. Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. In Jesus's time, the term orphan was figurative language that was used to refer to the loss of important people and could certainly be used to describe the disciples after the loss of Jesus. He won't leave the disciples as bereaved orphans. He will come to them. Jesus is a bit ambiguous here as to what follows and how he will come to them, but that does come in subsequent verses. But the most likely meaning of orphan in this context is referring to the fatherless. In this time, teachers were referred to as fathers and losing a great teacher would have been described as leaving a generation fatherless. But think of it this way. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the spirit will, in a sense, take over the father role and indwell in his followers so that they would metaphorically still have a father, negating that designation as an orphan. This may have different connotations, but if you'll allow me a little bit of leeway, been thinking a lot in these last six or seven months about what it would mean to be an orphan. And I don't think that your age matters. There's a lonely feeling that comes with the prospect of losing your remaining parent, even at 47 years of age. I can't describe it, but it's a weird feeling to envision yourself on this earth without your parents. But I find solace in verse 20 when Jesus comes to impart the spirit to the disciples. Can you even imagine, begin to imagine the role that the Spirit would play to those who were grieving Jesus' death? I can only imagine that it would be comforting, to say the least. When Jesus is resurrected, when he defeats death, all kinds of possibilities and opportunities open up. We will see him. We will live with his new life. We will know that he and the Father are in each other. We are in him and he is in us. We'll be joined in an unbreakable bond of love. This was and always will be incredible, for lack of a better word. I have no idea if this is gonna click with you all, but I teach reading during the week, and when we get to the section of what we call welded sounds, U-N-G, I-N-G, A-N-G, they're called welded sounds, and they are letters that work together instead of individually. When you sound out the word cat, each letter maintains its pure sound, but when the letters like ing are welded together, they, uh, they can't be individually identified. So when I get to this section, I always bring up a, a picture of a welder on Google with this, his or her, I've seen flash dance. <laughs> Most of you are too young. Um, but there's a picture of a welder with this fiery tool, and there, it's got three different uh, big pieces of metal, and the welder is welding those 
those pieces together. And I always tell them that once they're welded together, they can never be pulled apart. So there's not breaking them apart like the metal welder has worked on. So envision that welded metal while I read this again. We will live with his new life. We will know that he and the Father are in each other. We are in him and he is in us. In verses 22 through 25, the connections of obedience with love would likely have the Jewish hearers immediately think of the connection or association of obeying God's commands and the loving God, which is present throughout the entire Old Testament. Acts 5.32 says, we are witnesses of such things, as is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Keener poses the question, does John believe that the Spirit must be earned? Jewish people thought in terms of meriting the Spirit or the divine presence, but early Christians saw it as a gift. It's believed that John thought that the Spirit is not merited, but is received through faith. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a gift of peace. The peace that Jesus brings can never be replicated by anything that the world can offer. The Spirit goes to the disciples, those who obey, those who are committed to Jesus, and they receive greater power for obedience. Thus begins a cycle that results in deeper spiritual maturation. For John, an initial experience without working on deepening their spiritual maturation is not ultimately salvific or leading to salvation. Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will mediate his presence. The companion will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I told you. Mary Mae Thompson says, the gospel itself is undoubtedly the product of the Spirit's guidance to understand the significance of Jesus's person, life, death, and teaching. The presence of the Holy Spirit was not uncommon in the Old Testament, but the premise that he would permanently indwell was a distinct shift in thinking. The Holy Spirit comes from the Father himself to stay forever with the believer. As a believer and follower of Christ, this gives me unending hope so that no matter what I face, I'm never alone. The God that was in Jesus and the God that was with the disciples is available to you for believing. I'm well aware that this is not a simple task. I've had a pretty amazing life. I have dealt with grief and tragedy, but I don't claim to know the atrocities of war or abuse or abandonment or a million other things. There are so many circumstances that make the decision to follow Jesus a difficult one. It doesn't mean an easy life. It does not mean you won't experience troubles. It doesn't mean that you won't have grief or tragedy or anxiety. <sighs> but I can guarantee that by following Jesus, you will not be alone. You will have the spirit, that very essence of God, the Father himself in you. As Thompson writes, Jesus breathes the spirit into the disciples and sends them into the world. The work of his disciples will expand what he was able to do on earth. 
They must trust the Spirit to guide them so that they'll be able to carry on the work of the gospel mission. If you remember in John 14, Jesus tells the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. He repeats that, but adds another promise. He will give them peace. At this point in time, God was the only person who could give peace. So now we have Jesus promising peace and his presence after he's gone. I'm gonna attempt to talk about this peace that's offered, but I'll be honest. Um, but maybe a little bit too honest. I've been struggling for months with feeling this peace that's been promised and I've had trouble feeling it, feeling that peace. I believe that throughout our lives, we go through times when we find it difficult to, to actually feel that promised peace. In this little community of ours, I know that we have a lot going on as individuals and as families. Do we always feel that peace? My personal answer would be no. But that doesn't mean that it's not there for the taking. <coughs> Pray for each other. Surround each other with love. Use what the Spirit has given you to help each other feel that peace that oftentimes feels so very far away. So we come to the end of the passage and I want to pose a couple of questions. How do you show the love of Jesus, the love that Jesus has commanded in John 13? And how do you allow the Holy Spirit to continue Jesus's mission in you? This mission spreading the good news is that Jesus came to earth to put together a radically different community that's committed to returning the world to rights and to restoring all that God has created. Are we preaching the good news to the poor, the brokenhearted, the rejected, those who long for more? You know, the more that the world will never be able to provide. Jesus called on us to live out the gospel in real, tangible ways and this could manifest in innumerable ways, like working at the homeless shelter, fixing or serving the gentleman dinner, taking on an evening shift, talking with the men, taking an overnight shift so that the program can run and that the men can have a warm, dry place to sleep. Maybe it's taking an interest in the kids at the garden. That I can personally attest to. Taking an interest in a child has lasting impacts that you'll probably never even realize. Maybe it's mentoring at Epoch. Those connections and those um, relationships that you're, you're providing through discipleship, you will never know the impact that you have. Maybe it's just lending a hand, helping hand to someone who desperately needs one, or just sitting with those who grieve we must reach the broken, serve with the poor, and be an advocate for the oppressed. Help those without a voice. Help meet the practical needs in our community. The possibilities are endless. There are so many ways to carry out Jesus's mission, but there's one thing that I'm confident of. Carrying on his mission occurs because of the Holy Spirit in us 
the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the paraclete, whatever you want to refer to it as. This has been gifted to us and can be life-changing if we allow it to be. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. If you would like more information about the Restoration Project, we encourage you to visit our website at restoresby.org or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby, or spend some more time listening to past episodes of the podcast. If you have appreciated this or other episodes and would like to support the work that we do in Salisbury, Maryland, we invite you to review the podcast on iTunes. We aren't sure how it works, but we think people will be able to find us more easily online if you give us five stars. If that's not enough and you want to send us some money too, I mean, who are we to stand in the way? You can find ways to partner with us at give.restoresby.org.